Remember when I said uh, that uh, while we advocate, uh, we also are the change for which we advocate. Uh, this is an embodiment of that effort that we have gone out now. We've got $50 million committed to this over five years, uh, and we're looking for more money. So if anyone has another $10, 20000000 million uh, that they'd like to contribute to speed innovative medicines to market, just let us know at the break. Uh, but, uh, but John has been running this operation with great skill and great dedication. Now, it gives me great uh, pleasure uh, to announce our first panel uh, and actually have some people up here who can speak to some very important topics. So the first panel is really focused on this notion of how you take the latent power uh, that exists in America because of so many families being affected by this disease and turn it into a movement. Uh, we've seen movements in other therapeutic areas. Come on up, Mike. Uh, therapeutic uh, areas uh, and uh, uh, and... Uh, no, come on, come on. Don't be shy. Um, and so, um, and and so, what what did what can we learn from other movements about what took a national health crisis and issue uh, into a movement that, in fact, has demanded change and caused change? So we're very pleased that Mike McCurry, uh, who served as press secretary for how many different presidents? Mike, no. Um, uh, I was, uh, was able to, to, to be with us today and moderate uh, this panel, uh, and so I am very pleased to introduce Mike McCurry as the moderator and his panelists. Mike. Thank you. Thanks, George. Uh, welcome to everybody. Thank you for your very heartfelt remarks, uh, George, earlier. We've got a great panel, and I've got a microphone. Got Mike? We don't have to. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, well, welcome, everyone. We've got a great panel. I'm going to move briskly through that so that we can try to uh, stay roughly on time. Uh, first, on the far side down there to your left, Nancy Brinker is the founder and board member of Susan G. Komen, an organization named after her only sister, Susan, who died of breast cancer in 1980 at the age of 36. In 2009, President Obama honored her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest uh, civilian honor. Rita Carrion is Deputy Vice President of the Institute for Hispanic Health for Unidos U.S., formerly the National Council on La Raza, if you knew that organization. The Institute is dedicated to reducing the incidence, burden, and impact of health disparities on Latinos. Wade Henderson is Senior Advisor to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, where he served as its president for 20 years. He was a leader, as many of you know, also in the NAACP and the ACLU. Uh, Dr. Veronica Miller is the Executive Director of the Forum for Collaborative Research, a public-private partnership. Under her leadership, the forum has extended its process for advancing regulatory science, which it successfully applied in the area of HIV-AIDS, uh, and to other areas of health. And then uh, next to me, Dr. Isabel Sahil is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, uh, where she has served as co-director of its Center on Children and Families. She's also the board president, more relevant for this discussion, of the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. Um, I can't resist starting, as now I'm a professor of theology with a little scripture. Uh, the prophet Micah in the Hebrew Bible says our job as mortals is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And I think it's a, 
act of humility on the part of all of you as Alzheimer's advocates that you would like to learn from those organizations and those movements that have been successful in the areas uh, that each of them will describe. So each of them will tell you a little bit about some of their learnings as they built successful organizations uh, in the areas in which they work. And Nancy, I'd like to start with you on uh, thank you. breast thank cancer you. in particular. Thank you, Mike, and thank you all for coming today. And uh, again, thanks to George and I'm um, and you all, Trish, for starting this wonderful organization and to see so many of you here, which is a massive beginning and being so uh, um, joined by such great experts. So I'm going to move quickly because we all just have a few minutes, but my points are going to be very pointed, so I hope you'll forgive me for being very direct. First of all, you have to have better signage when you come into your meetings, and that goes to the kind of people you have to attract to your cause, like me, who are um, poor scorers on SATs, uh, poor uh, people, uh, as we said uh, earlier, one of my colleagues, Veronica, we didn't have, we weren't born with GSPs in our heads, so you have to make sure that people know who you are and through your signage, through your branding, that they understand what you stand for and who you are because they ultimately are your best storytellers. And stories are going to move the passion of the country. It won't be the policy people. Uh, all of you, you have some brilliant people. This prize idea, you're so far ahead of where so many people are, but now you have to gather the heart and soul of the nation. And you can see what happened in our last election, and those are the sort of tactics, the stories that move people, that touch the hearts. And as I look over all of your information, what I see uh, that stirs me so much, because my family was, for my aunt and my grandmother, caretakers. The caretaker story is huge. Not the money, the pitiful money. You know, when I look at um, Alzheimer's, I see that you... Uh, there's $200 billion, uh, the costs associated, spent annually on this disease. The amount on Alzheimer's research, and I hope my numbers are wrong, less than $500 million of the NIH's $31 billion research budget. I don't know if that's changed. It, it has. Okay, then I have old numbers, and I'm sorry. Yeah. But success won't be dictated by the financial argument, as I just said. It's going to be about people who will show up out of their own needs and sorrow. So... Giving people hope is, is a great light on your horizon because they see, they'll see what you're doing. And again, storytellers, your neighbor, the grocery store, the checkout person, uh, the filling attendant, anyone that you can capture for 30 seconds, tell the story to. Uh, it will make a difference. And when you believe that, you are halfway there, as Theodore Roosevelt said. Start with the end in mind which you have. You have very wonderful, lofty goals. And again, I congratulate you on the quality of people you have in your science and what you're doing. Um, and um, then I think I have to tell you that um, Mary Curie, who is the only woman in the world I wish I had known, uh, <laughs> really personally, but she always said, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. And now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. And I think the whole public really wants to understand Alzheimer's better. Again, I'm talking on a grassroots level. So showing people the progression of the disease, actually some of the pharmaceutical ads do a better job of that than almost anyone I can think of because it comes right in front of you again. Find ways to grow in your community. Find ways, again, storytellers, finding ways for them to convene, finding ways to completely repeat and make your message, messages mantras. The story of the promise I made to my sister is told at every Komen event uh, when we go to do, because it's every woman's story. It isn't just about my sister. It's about 
everyone's sister, everyone's loved one. And until the public believes that, uh, then the the rallying really starts. Um, And don't, again, focus just on the future. Focus on the now. Patient navigation is a big support of what we do at Susan Komen. And doing those sorts of things and demonstrating the outcomes of those brings more people into town hall meetings with their Congress people and their senators, and they will tell these stories over and over. So I can't say that. Aim for success, not perfection. And where there is teamwork and collaboration, a lot of wonderful things will happen. Much of this you're already doing. Um, I just also want to tell you that... um, I think there are something like, and again, my numbers may be wrong, 15 million unpaid caregivers of Alzheimer's patients within the U.S. This is a powerful group of people, and most of you know that already because I heard you reference that. Um, African Americans are twice as likely to develop um, Alzheimer's as Caucasians. Hispanics are 1.5 times more likely. And again, if my numbers aren't accurate, I apologize. Um, But for every dollar the federal government spends today on the costs of care, it invests less than a penny in research, according to our calculations. And those things just can't keep going. If you start with small groups, remembering, never doubt, that a small, thoughtful group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Margaret Mead, another mantra we speak of every day, helped us create this race for the cure. And... The models do get older. You have to constantly go on and create new ways to reach young audiences. Their styles of giving and participating are different, but you have to be relevant. This is a disease that develops over a long period of time, I'm told. Therefore, you have to be relevant to a lot of groups and a lot of ages. Nancy, I want to move on to Rita if we can, because you've been able to kind of elevate this on a particular population, Mm -hmm. the Latino population, to raise awareness and then broaden out the interest to a broader group. I think that's part of the theme we're looking at here is how do you take the specific things that you have worked on in your organizations and then lifted them up so a broader public gets interested and become uh, interested in the issue. But your experience is Yeah, um, I would echo what Nancy has been saying these last you know, couple minutes in terms of the storytelling and really being relevant. Um, I know one of the big things that, that we, you asked us to look at also is um, kind of what is that movement that was successful for us. Um, at Unidos US, we're you know, formerly the NCLR, the National Council of La Raza, which is the largest Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organizations. Um, and we recently changed our name this past July um, to continue to be relevant to the population that we continue to serve and seeing in terms of our demographics changing. Um, we have key, key communities and priorities um, that we're focused on, you know, really um, knowing our millennials, uh, you know, our future, um, as well as uh, Spanish-speaking populations and Latino professionals. But one of the movements that I think was a, is a major um, public health uh, achievement for Unidos U.S. just recently, and it took us almost, depending on how you look at it, almost 10 years, but if you look at it, it's 20 years. It's um, back in 1996, the FDA um, had approved the fortification of folic, of, of wheat products of folic acid um, to prevent neurobirth defects um, in wheat products. Um, <clears throat> but what had happened is that we were continue, and continuing to see a decline, 27% in overall population, um, but we weren't seeing that decline among Latinas. 
Um, and so there is a theory about why were, were we not seeing that decline um, for our communities. Um, and is it because Latinas may tend to eat more corn tortillas um, or um, corn masa flour? So that was critical for us to really think about in terms of in 2006 to, to kind of form a coalition of the March of Dimes, Unidos U.S., Royal DM, uh, Goya, the largest corn masa flour um, manufacturer, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics as well, to really look at kind of showing the evidence that this is a need that we need to also pass um, with the FDA, uh, to and and that took us almost ten years to do. So if if I were to say um, in 2016, ten years after knowing this, <clears throat> um, there was a lot of battles and a lot of stops and and coming back again and really changing your 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 plan of action really um, because we went through two different administrations to do that. Um, and this is a major public health achievement for us and as an organization, as a coalition, working with traditional and non-traditional partners. We worked with the CDC at different points of time. We worked with March of Dimes, who's a major advocacy, the Spina Bifida Association, Unidos U.S., our relationship with Goya, um, our relationship with Walmart, which is the largest distributor um, of, you know, of retail and, and has a very powerful say in terms of products that go out into the market. Um, we were able to have that relationship um, with the private partners as well as the government um, entities um, that we, we serve. And I think that, that I was very impressed by this morning and, and the stories that you were telling and, and, uh, of, of the field and the ground and also the personal stories. And I think that's just as important because that brings us the passion to move forward. Wait, wait. In some ways, the civil rights movement was the granddaddy of all social justice movements, but uh, what experiences from that history do you think are useful? Well, Mike, thanks for inviting me. This is uh, an important opportunity, and George, great to see you. Um, let me say that some of the lessons of the civil rights movement can be adapted, I think, to help bring greater uh, focus, uh, a greater goal-setting and accomplishment in uh, this effort to uh, broaden the base of understanding of Alzheimer's. So let me say that many of us come to the table because of some of the responsibilities that we have, the jobs that we hold. But many of us come to the table because this is personal. Mm -hmm. This is very personal. We've been affected by the disease either directly or indirectly through family members, through close friends, through individuals who have been affected and stricken in the prime of their careers. And the pain of watching them suffer, the you know, slow uh, death that Alzheimer's brings, has motivated us to take action. Now, when you step back, particularly as an African-American, and look at the totality of the circumstances, you have to be alarmed. This disease is growing exponentially. 55% growth for all Americans between 1999 and 2014. But for African Americans, there was a 99% growth. For Latinos, it's 100% growth. When you add to that the wealth gap of Americans, the ability to accommodate and respond to the demands of the disease are severe and are creating untold hardships, particularly or ability to plan in anticipation of the responsibilities they have. 
So there is indeed a sort of uh, uh, awakening shot in the recognition that the disease exists. Not that we haven't known it, but that it's as prevalent as it has become. So that's the general conditions on which we look. Now, the movement, the, the Alzheimer's Association, has set some very specific goals. One of them is to eradicate the disease by 2025. Guys, that's a bold move. You're talking about seven years from now for a disease that has not risen to the level of public consciousness as translated by the allocation of funds at the federal level to address the disease. And that seems to me to be a, a bold goal. Uh, not to say that it is impossible, but to say that if you expect to accomplish it, you've got to do a couple of things. So these are the lessons first, the three lessons that I would sort of pick up from the social justice movement of which I'm a part. Guys, I'm not a, uh, a physician, I'm not a clinician, uh, I am a civil rights lawyer and an activist. And I teach now at the University of the District of Columbia School of Law. But these are some of the lessons that I've picked up. First of all, movements develop from the bottom up, not from the top down. And while it is important to have structure from an association like this, it is the personal stories of individuals who have been affected by the disease, captured in ways that help to touch the hearts and minds of many out there who experience similar hardship that will help to build an awareness and understanding. So that's point one. Point two, only in coalition do you have sufficient strength to address this issue. Now, I'm pleased to look around the room and to see an audience that looks pretty much like America. But the movement that will be necessary to move this issue forward has to take the diversity in this room and translate that into a political strategy to affect individual members of Congress where they live. Because the objective, guys, is to get additional resources out of Congress focused on this disease in the same way that we have been successful in focusing on cancer, and in recent years, to a greater degree, HIV, although we're a long way from where we should be. But trying to get that visibility is one of the goals. And to do that, you're going to require an effort. And then thirdly, this it, it, disease is an equal opportunity destroyer. It doesn't favor party affiliation. If we're going to succeed in Congress, you're going to have to have the votes of both major parties. You need Democrats and Republicans to move anything affirmatively. So in building your movement and hierarchy, you're going to have to pull from both parties, guys. And trying to find individuals who have been affected personally by the disease should not be that difficult. Members of Congress, of course, experience this just like everyone else. And trying to reach them and get their stories are necessary. So here's my last observation. I do think in recent years we have seen success in ways that I would not have thought possible. For example, what the Gates Foundation has done for malaria globally is really noteworthy. I mean, they've almost eradicated the disease through provision of money and mobilization of talent globally. There's no reason that this can't be handled in the same way to try to increase the level of funding for studies, which I note the last budget did significantly but more is needed in order to make that happen. And then in order to really accomplish those specific results, guys, you need a political strategy that is targeted on members of Congress with power. 
and trying to get their personal stories and connect them to what you are doing with respect to building the case for additional federal resources allocated to this effort. So as much as this is a medical issue, as much as this is a communications issue, this is a political issue to be handled like any other political question with people who have the expertise on how to move members of Congress in addition to framing the public debate. So those would be my lessons. Veronica, several people have referenced already HIV AIDS and the way in which awareness was raised around uh, that issue. What learnings come out of some of the success that you've had that you think are applicable here? Great. Thank you very much. And it is a, a real honor for me to be here with this panel. Um, so first of all, I wanted to say the organization that I lead, the Forum for Collaborative Research, um, includes all stakeholders, including advocacy and patient representatives. But we, as, as an organization, are not an advocacy organization. So I just, I'm coming from a slightly different perspective. But of course, I've been involved in HIV research since the 1980s. So have witnessed uh, what's, what's happened in the field. And certainly, um, I think uh, there were, I mean, we, we've done pretty good. You know, within 30 years, we have more treatment than we know what to do with sometimes. There's a lot of choice for patients now from a whole bowl full of pills three times a day, some with food, some without food, to one pill a day. Uh, hardly any side effects. So we've done pretty good. We've got, we've got a way to go yet in terms of catching everyone that needs to be treated. But um, so I think the key factors for HIV were, one, um, opportunities and players uh, that played a key role. Second one was networks for collaboration that came up very early. The third was the impact of the advocacy, which was a real regulatory paradigm shift. And that you can kind of trace it all the way into the 21st Century's Cure Act now. This whole issue of patient-centered research, um, many more mechanisms now for expediting approval, um, the use of surrogate markers, etc. And also, I think in the 21st Century Cures Act, we've got a, a lot of opportunities, for example, much more um, interest in using real-world evidence um, to back up, so the totality of evidence, so that the random, the traditional randomized clinical trials will still be the main focus, but we can supplement that data. So, um, and of course, the way we do clinical trials now has changed a lot as well, and I was very happy to hear about the project with the platform uh, project, because I think that is, is one mechanism to do it. And then, of course, uh, we had champions, um, and those are ex they were extremely important. And, um, of course, the drug development was very efficient, but we only had, you know, what now seems like a very uncomplicated little virus to deal with. And if you stop that virus, you stop disease. And, of course, Alzheimer's is a little bit more complicated than that. So um, I think that um, in terms of champions, um, you know, the, the initial group that was um, very effective at advocacy were, were gay men in New York and San Francisco who were hit the first and hardest, and so many people lost so many friends, and again, all of those stories. Um, but uh, they were still a very stigmatized group, so it was sort of a double-edged sword. So their advocacy became very theatrical and very dramatic. And I think it was very, very effective because of, of how they did it. 
But what happened at the same time is that Tony Fauci, when they lined up in front of his office or in front of the NIH building and had T-shirts that said, you know, uh, bury my, my body at the front of the FDA or something. They didn't even know that Tony Fauci had nothing to do with the FDA. But they learned very, very fast. They, Tony said, let me open the door and go out and talk to them. So that was the first uh, instance of researchers and high-level policymakers in terms of research actually welcoming the patient input. And um, the reason I think the patient advocacy groups were so successful is that they very, very quickly trained. And I was at many conferences where they would all sit in the first uh, two rows. And boy, every speaker better had his or her facts straight because they knew more about the science than sometimes the speakers did. And, and they didn't pause. You know, They would just get up to the mic and ask the questions and really pushed and pushed and pushed. So I think that's maybe a different kind of advocacy than, than, um, than we're talking about here. But, but think about you know, what really in terms of your advocacy will have the most push and bang for the buck. In terms of champions, um, again, in HIV, we had um, for children, Terry Wright, uh, 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 Terry White, uh, sorry, Ryan White. Sorry, I'm mixing my names up here. So we have the Ryan White Care Act, which is the only disease other than, than kidney and dialysis that actually has a mechanism of funding. So no matter what your insurance level, through the Ryan White Care Act, you, you get treatment. So that's, that's an incredible... Um, success, but that was because it was Ryan White that was the little boy who was kicked out of school and, and you know, the poster child. Very different from, from the uh, men who have sex with men community. Uh, we had Bill Clinton, we had um, another uh, real important advocate was actually C. Everett Koop, the nation's doctor at that time in, in the Reagan White House. And as you, many of you may know that Reagan refused to say the words HIV or AIDS. And C. Everett Koop, although he was very conservative, said, I'm the nation's doctor and if patients need my help, I'm here to help them. And he put out this, this mailing that went to every household uh, in America, I received a, a, a brochure from the C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General of the United States, explaining what HIV was, how it is transmitted, very clear language about you know condoms and and how it is transmitted, etc. And this in the Reagan White House. And uh, I have a whole publication because he gave a talk once, and and uh, I have his whole speech actually written down. Um, um, from about, two, uh, about three or four years ago before he died. So those are the kinds of champions that I think really can make a difference. Um, in terms of the um, other opportunities, for example, came when we wanted to increase uh, treatment to the developing world. And many people at, at higher levels of leadership said, nah, we can't do that, they won't be adherent, we'll just get drug resistance, etc." And again, it was the advocacy push that then led to the PEPFAR program. And that wouldn't have happened if people hadn't said, convince people and the stories about people in Africa, the mothers and the children. And I was at an event with, with, um, with Mrs. Bush where she brought in um, you know, her group, she was um, really uh, promoting um, a program of mothers uh, helping mothers-to-be um, that were diagnosed with HIV during pregnancy. So many different audiences, many different types of advocacy, but I think um, the, 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 the important lessons are to know the audience, 
to let everyone in terms of collaboration do what they do best. When you have coalitions, everyone has a different role to play and respect that and let them do that. And when you get the resources that all of this advocacy is going to provide, then let's figure out how to do drug development in the most efficient way possible. Isabel, there's been some encouraging statistics on teen pregnancy, but what have been the elements of success in the campaign that you helped direct? Uh, well, in the spirit of humility, uh, I'm not sure I can tell anybody here anything they don't already know, but I'll try to make a couple of comments. First of all, I find it very inspiring to be here, to have heard uh, George Vredenberg and others uh, talk about this, to look at your materials. I think you're doing everything right, as far as I can tell. I mean, I think if I had to th say what our success has been due to, um, you've got to set very clear goals. Uh, you've done that. Um, and it seems to me, we, we used to talk about big, bold, hairy, audacious goals. And I think that even if they seem like a stretch, it's good to have them. We originally set a goal for reducing teenage pregnancy by a certain date, which everybody said was impossible, unrealistic. It turned out that we achieved it. Now, it wasn't us as an organization, it was the country, but leadership and organization do matter. And when the video was shown this morning of uh, Trish Vredenberg uh, talking about this, I wrote down um, the quote, understanding, excuse me, yesterday's dreams are today's reality. And I think that is just really uh, true. So I would encourage having these bold um, and ambitious goals. Uh, second thing is um, leadership. I think leadership matters. And I am proud that one of the um, leaders of this organization is Sally Sacker, who cut her teeth, if I could put it that way, uh, for being, being a leader of the national campaign uh, to prevent teen pregnancy. And um, we, uh, I think, benefited from her leadership, and I hope uh, you will as well. Third thing, um, organizations need to continuously evolve and change. Uh, I was interested to see the, the, the slide this morning that said, we don't care about buildings and structure, we really care about just getting things done. I think it's, you have to guard against that. You have to guard against becoming bureaucratic, becoming too set in your ways. Uh, we do periodic reviews of our strategy uh, at the national campaign. And as an organization that now seven years old and not 20 years old as we are, uh, I would just say uh, keep up the rethinking of what you're doing and how it's working all the time. Now, leadership without followership is nothing, of course. So um, I endorse what everybody else on the panel has said about that, uh, the kind of networking you're doing, the kind of collaborative approach, bringing all of the organizations that work in this space together and trying to get on the same page couldn't be more important. I would say we struggled with that in the reproductive health field. Uh, it's very controversial, as uh, you know. 
and it's been harder, uh, uh, harder political battle for those reasons. Uh, finally, let me say something about the caregivers. I, again, agree with everything that's been said about that. I do want to mention briefly that in addition to my role at the Brookings Institution and my role at the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, I am part of a still a third group, uh, which has been studying for a year now and is going to be working another year on paid family leave. And uh, part of the issue here is can caregivers get paid time off when they have jobs? And this uh, working group that I co-lead along with a woman named Aparna Mather at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, it's a joint project between AEI and Brookings, and she and I are leading it, we are working as we speak on what policy should look like uh, to enable more caregivers, caregivers to have paid leave, whether we do it through Social Security or through some new um, uh, program is still to be decided. Uh, we, I have uh, made a presentation to the Business Roundtable on this recently. Uh, we have been um, invited to the White House to talk about it, and we have written an initial report, and we'll have another one at the end of this year on the whole caregiving situation. So I uh, hope we can work some with all of you on that. Listen, you guys <clears throat> did a wonderful job of sort of sketching out some of the elements, and I think probably the audience can detect from that some of the things that are in common across your experiences. But let me ask, and we probably only have time for a couple of questions, and I'd like to try to get one or two questions from the audience. So I'll just pose one harder question, which is, we've talked about successes, but what mistakes did you make along the way? What were the things that you had to overcome? What should these folks be on the lookout for that sometimes get you off track? Anybody? Uh, go ahead. I'll start, uh, if you like. I think doing too much mm -hmm. is always a danger. I think you really have to set priorities, have goals that are doable as well as bold. Uh, you can have a bold long-term goal, but very concrete, specific short-term goals, uh, and not try to do everything. Any, yeah. any other confessions here? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. And knowing when to quit when you've done enough. Because once you elevate an issue to the place it can be and others can collaborate, uh, then you need to back off. And those are lessons that are hard for nonprofits to do because you have constituencies built around each one. So you have to have careful communication strategies for everything you do and get out in front of everything you do. Uh, don't assume the public will understand anything or the people that you have involved. You have to chart the way, change appropriately, right size. We were in 30 countries and all over the world with very successful programs and didn't shift quickly enough into more of the focused efforts. It's very hard to do, by the way, because once you are successful and have a crescendo, everyone wants something and you're tempted to do something for everyone. Yeah, I, w I would agree uh, completely. I think we, we suffer from that even now. Um, you know, with the civil rights movement, I think there's another civil rights movement happening now. Um, and, you know, we, uh, as, as an organization, uh, not only are involved in overarching civil rights issues, you know, where most people know us for immigration, um, but we're also in health, we're in housing, we're in education, we're in workforce development, um, we're in, I know I'm missing a couple of different things, uh, but 
the, the important thing is, is to make sure that you do have those clear goals, know where your role is as, uh, is as an organization. I think it's very hard because all of us are very passionate in what we do and, and, and the organizations and the people that work, work with us, but also the organizations in our network also are multi-service organizations or community-based organizations that don't necessarily have all the resources and the ability and they're continuing to be addressed in a no- number of different ways. Um, and I think the, the overarching thing that, that's great about uh, y- us against Alzheimer's is that you're very clear and you, and you have that power of that shared knowledge of what the problem is. Um, I think it's important to also understand the, the overarching ecosystem around you, the racial, the economic, the sh- social dynamics that go to it in terms of, of this health and all policies that, that, you know, and looking at it from the caregiver role of, of getting paid, from looking at it from different angles. And you could easily, you know, become, you know, really spread thin. Um, and, it, and it's very difficult to come in back and manage expectations, too, of your own communities and, and, and the people that you serve. I think uh, Belle put her, her hand on the biggest challenge, which is when you have a bold goal, such as uh, a 2025 date to end Alzheimer's, which I think is terrific, guys. I mean, I think, you know, it's a bold goal. But when you have a bold goal, you have to stay focused if you have any chance at all of, of reaching that goal. So we've got to stay focused. Secondly, just a couple of additional elements. I mean, I've seen it within the civil rights community and other movements that often petty jealousies and rivalries emerge between organizations that are committed to similar goals. And those distractions seep the energy of an emerging movement in ways that can be harmful. So that's number one. Avoid that trap if possible. Secondly, avoid hubris. This sense that, you know, hey, because we really want this and because it's so important and because we know what we're doing, you know, we will push and drive to make things work and get that goal and failure to recognize when to cut a deal when to take advantage of a political opportunity that has created itself. You guys are not functioning in a world of clinicians or a pure uh, democracy in which people do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. There are a set of political factors that will come into play and recognizing how those factors emerge and when to cut that deal and how to advance those goals are important practical considerations that need to undergird everything you're doing on the idealistic side. Any last thoughts? Um, Yeah, I guess along these lines, sort of also knowing when to change tracks. And uh, one example from HIV was at the beginning, the disease was so stigmatizing, there was no treatment. Basically, a diagnosis meant you've got, you know, so many years to live. And so there was great effort uh, placed on protecting the patient. So it was all about you had to have a written informed consent, you had to have pre- and post-test counseling, and in every state that was the state law, and even within the, for example, VA, that was the law uh, uh, to recognize when it's time to switch. Well, listen, I, I, I said humility was the theme. I have to be humble enough to say I didn't leave enough time for questions from from all of you, but I hope that from these different case studies, these examples, that you've gotten some things that are useful to all of you as you plan out and think about how you will increase public awareness, how you can increase funding, and also how you can draw more publics into the issues that you are going to be raising, particularly as you do your Hill visits. But with that, 
please uh, join me in giving all of our panelists a round of applause.